0: Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, November 30th, 2022,
1: where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Twitter ends its COVID misinformation policy. Musk says Apple threatened to boot Twitter from its app store. China cracks down on COVID protests. Four Palestinians are killed in the West Bank. The U.S. accuses Russia of using winter as a weapon. The Georgia runoff sets an early voting record. Congress and Biden intervene in planned railroad strikes. Another crypto company goes bankrupt.
0: Pakistan's Taliban ends its truce. And Qatar says up to 500
1: World Cup migrant workers died. Topping our podcast today, Twitter ends its COVID misinformation policy. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Verge, Fox News. Axios, Newsbud, and CNN. Twitter has announced an end to its policy regulating COVID misinformation, rules developed in 2020 to prohibit disputed information about the virus and vaccines from the platform. The change was made in a note added to the policy saying quote, Effective November 23, 2022, Twitter is no longer enforcing the COVID 19 misleading information policy. The policy, which took effect in March 2020, took down posts that contradicted authoritative sources and later augmented to prioritize the removal of the most harmful, misleading information about COVID vaccines. Last year, Twitter began labeling tweets it considered potentially misleading and established a strike system that led to permanent account suspensions for repeat offenders. Between January and September 2020, the company suspended more than 11,000 accounts and removed more than 100,000 content elements. The end of the policy comes after Twitter's new owner and CEO Elon Musk laid off half the company's workforce, including members of the content moderation, human rights, and communications teams. On the same day Twitter ended its COVID policy, Musk issued a poll asking users whether he should offer general amnesty to suspended accounts, to which 72.4% of the 3 million voters answered yes. Musk then tweeted, amnesty begins next week. Though he's said he supports vaccines, Musk was critical of U.S. COVID policy during the pandemic, calling it, quote, forcibly imprisoning people in their homes against all their constitutional rights. All right, on this show, we separate the spin
0: from the facts. Those were the facts. And let's begin our narrative spins with an establishment critical narrative from Not the Bee. Musk believes in free speech, which means he believes in the right to question and debate so-called authoritative sources. The U.S. government and big tech policies related to COVID were arbitrary. On Twitter, users were suspended for spreading any information that wasn't blessed by the establishment. This is a win
1: for freedom of speech. And our friends from Stat gives us a pro-establishment narrative. Allowing disinformation isn't promoting free speech. It's hindering the public's ability to receive life-saving medical advice. Under Twitter's previous policy... Experts were able to flag harmful speech and protect the uninformed from dangerous disinformation. Under Musk's new policy, and amid another rise in COVID cases, those safeguards will be gone, and the public square will flood with harmful public health recommendations.
0: You know, a while back they said that uh, we wouldn't know definitively when the pandemic was over. It would just be a kind of a gradual thing, and one day we would wake up and it would be over. Uh, I feel like this is one of those many things that would have to happen. This Twitter kind of COVID misinformation policies going away seems like it's one of the things that has to
1: happen to get there. I I agree with you. And, uh, you know, I've been wearing my seatbelt as I walk through the mall and wearing my mask when I drive my car. So are you
0: wearing those little booties (laughs) the plumber has to put on when he comes into your house too? You got those on too? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I put one of those over my mouth, actually.
0: Oh, that's attractive. Want to help us improve the news? Go to org/pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. Elon Musk says that Apple threatened to boot Twitter from its App Store. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Forbes, The Verge, CNN, The Guardian, and Al Jazeera. On Monday, Elon Musk claimed that Apple has threatened to remove Twitter from the iOS App Store for unknown reasons. In an earlier tweet, he also said the iPhone maker had mostly stopped advertising on the platform. This comes as Musk accused Apple of censorship and monopolistic practices, taking aim at its 30% commission and hinting at going to war with the company. Some say removal from the Apple App Store would be damaging to Twitter, which has reportedly already seen a loss of advertisers following Musk's $44 billion takeover and his attempts at expanding its subscription business. Advertisers have been uneasy with Musk's Twitter takeover, reportedly amid concerns that he will allow hate speech to proliferate on the platform. Apple hasn't yet responded to Musk's claim, but the tech giant has removed apps like Gab and Parler from its app store over concerns about their ability to moderate harmful content. According to ad measurement firm Pathmatics, Apple spent an estimated $131,000 on Twitter ads between November 10th and November 16th, down from around $221,000 between October 16th and October 22nd, the week before Musk's deal to acquire Twitter was completed.
1: Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. Let's take a look at the spins. We begin with a right narrative coming from conservative Treehouse. The mainstream media has been histrionic since Musk took over Twitter and started implementing changes. They fear increased hate speech and misinformation, but a strong democracy can withstand untrue opinions and outlandish comments without falling apart. Musk's new Twitter marks the end of the Orwellian foundations that the company stood on for years.
0: And CNN brings us the left narrative. A rise in hate speech has emerged since Musk's acquisition, and as a result, advertisers have rightly started applying pressure. However, whether true or not, this alleged threat from Apple will not even make a dent in the richest man's plans. While some may be willing to toe the line and resist this increasingly toxic digital public square, it's better to just leave Twitter now.
1: And finally, for this story, we have a nerd narrative. There's a 4% chance that Elon Musk will hold a major political office in the United States before February of 2033. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. I wonder if his hair will look just as good then as it does now. It does look good. <laughs> it does look good. <laughs> In our next story, China asserts a security response amid COVID protests. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by BBC News, New York Times, CNN, NewsBud, and CNBC. Residents of China who attended weekend protests against COVID restrictions claim they have been contacted by police demanding information surrounding their whereabouts. Reports claim police have also begun searching cell phones for VPNs as well as blocked apps such as Telegram and Twitter. The reaction is reportedly a wide-ranging response by the security apparatus of Xi Jinping to squelch dissent. The People's Republic of China state media reported an official security meeting that asserted that authorities would quote, resolutely crack down on illegal and criminal acts that disrupt social order. In major cities on Monday and Tuesday, police patrolled the sites of weekend protests to deter any continued public frustration directed at the central government. In Shanghai, sidewalks were blocked by barricades, and one protester characterized the atmosphere as, quote, chilling. Meanwhile, China's National Health Commission stated on Tuesday that officials would attempt to minimize the inconvenience caused by the COVID protocols. NHC spokesperson Mi Feng reportedly stated, quote, Excessive control measures should be continuously rectified and the reasonable requests of the people should be responded to and addressed in a timely manner. Demonstrations in China initially started in Urumqi on Friday after a building fire killed 10 people in an area that had been locked down for months. The protests spread nationwide throughout the weekend.
0: We've got matching hot and cold narratives on this story, Eric, Let's start with the pro-China narrative from Global Times. The COVID situation is tenuous and dangerous in China, but PRC officials are doing their best to reduce the inconvenience to citizens in economic and public life. That said, the virus is spreading quickly across the country in a complex way and is a threat to public health and safety. There must be even more targeted measures now, but a whole-of-society
1: approach is needed to navigate this COVID threat. And Guardian provides us with an anti-China narrative. It's clear that many people in China are tired of the increasingly ineffective zero-COVID strategy. And the world is bracing for the worst. While the protests will put pressure on Beijing, the PRC's use of ineffective non-MRNA vaccines could make for a national and even global health crisis. China is now stuck in the volatile position to overwhelm its extremely fragile healthcare system. Or continue to face public outcry over draconian policies.
0: And from time to time we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous prediction community. The one on this story says there’s a 50% chance that China will end its COVID-0 policy by July of 2023. Tragedy in the Holy Land as four Palestinians are killed in the West Bank. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Stars and Stripes, Associated Press, Naharnet, and Reuters. At least four Palestinians were reportedly killed in the West Bank on Tuesday as violence continues to escalate throughout the disputed territory. Near Hebron, one man was killed and at least eight others wounded during clashes. In a village near Ramallah, two brothers were also allegedly killed by Israeli forces. Finally, a Palestinian man reportedly rammed his car into an Israeli soldier, seriously injuring her, before being shot dead by Israeli police. Tuesday's clashes began when two Israeli military vehicles stalled outside Beit Umar during what the army alleged was a routine activity. According to the Israeli military, troops opened fire when protesters shot at them and hurled rocks and Molotov cocktails. The two brothers were killed in Kaf'in near Ramallah, and the Israeli military didn't immediately comment on their deaths. The reported violence comes as Israeli politics has shifted to the right, with incoming Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu last week naming the far-right Itmar Ben-Gver as security minister, with powers over policing the West Bank. Meanwhile, the Israeli military has increased its activity across the West Bank following several alleged attacks by Palestinians earlier this year, as well as a recent bombing in Jerusalem that reportedly killed two Israelis.
1: Those were the facts, and we have two spins that have emerged from this story, with a pro Palestine spin coming from Al Jazeera. Yet again, Israel is committing crimes against humanity by killing Palestinians with wanton aggression. The past year has been one of the deadliest years for Palestinians since the Second Intifada, with hundreds of Palestinians being murdered by the Israeli regime. Israel must be held accountable for its crimes. And the pro Israel spin comes from Times of Israel.
0: Though Palestine supporters like to pretend that the Israeli military seeks to kill Palestinians with abandon, in reality it's simply responding to Palestinian violence and terrorism. This has been a deadly year for Israelis, including a bomb attack in Jerusalem last week, so it's no surprise that the military needs to increase its operations in the West Bank. The violence will end when Palestinians put down their weapons.
1: In our next story, the war in Ukraine continues as we look at day 279 and the United States says that Russia is using winter as a weapon of war. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, TRT World, Reuters, Al-Arabia, and Guardian. White House spokesperson John Kirby has alleged that by targeting Ukraine's energy infrastructure, Russia is using winter as a weapon of war. Putin is a guy who's used food as a weapon. He's used fear as a weapon. Now, he's using the cold weather here to try to bring the Ukrainian people to their knees, he said. Describing the Russian attacks on Ukraine's civilian infrastructure as, quote, attempts to take revenge, the country's president Volodymyr Zelensky said in his nightly address on Monday that he would, quote, do everything to restore every object, every house, every enterprise destroyed by the occupiers. Russian missile strikes have damaged nearly 30% of Ukraine's power grid while tens of millions of Ukrainians braced themselves to endure below-freezing temperatures, strong winds, rain, and snow. Meanwhile, NATO Chief Jen Stoltenberg called on partners to pledge more financial aid to keep millions of Ukrainian civilians safe and warm through the winter ahead. Quote, NATO will continue to stand for Ukraine as long as it takes. We will not back down, Stoltenberg said. Elsewhere, the U.S. is expected to announce substantial emergency aid to Ukraine during a NATO meeting in Bucharest, in order to help restore power and heat supplies following Russian strikes. An AFP report quoted a senior U.S. official who claimed that the Biden administration has budgeted $1.1 billion for energy spending in Ukraine and Moldova. On Tuesday, Russian forces heavily shelled residential infrastructure in the recently liberated city of Kherson, while on their part, Ukrainian forces damaged a rail bridge north of the Russian-occupied city of Miletopol. Security and defense analyst Professor Michael Clark told news agencies that Moscow's forces appeared to be planning bigger airstrikes and that Russian troops seem to be making progress in Bakhmut, where fighting has reportedly descended into a bloody morass. Elsewhere, the Italian parliament is preparing to vote on allowing Prime Minister Georgia Maloney's government to continue sending military assets, materials, and equipment to Ukraine until December 31, 2023. Quote, it is worth supporting Ukraine, Italy's prime minister said, because negotiations can only emerge from a balance of power on the field.
0: Thanks for those facts on this long-running tragedy, Eric. We are back to our standard narratives today with the anti-Russia narrative from PBS NewsHour. This invasion is an egregious violation of international law. Putin's ultimate aim is to restore the Soviet empire, even if it takes massive bloodshed and false pretexts, such as calling the 2014 Ukrainian Revolution after an election, a coup. This unprovoked attack is the latest chapter in Putin's Orwellian attempt to rewrite history.
1: And National Security Archive gives us the pro-Russian narrative. NATO and the U.S. have ignored Russia's security concerns by breaking its promise not to expand eastward in return for German reunification. These concerns are legitimate, and taking them seriously would have avoided the Ukraine tragedy. We've got a nerd narrative on this story as
0: well from Metaculus. This one says that there's a 15% chance that Ukraine will receive a security guarantee from another country before the year 2024. The Georgia runoff sets early voting single-day turnout record. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Fox News, CBS, Business Insider, and NBC. According to Georgia Deputy Secretary of State Gabriel Sterling, voters turned out in record numbers Monday to vote early in the Senate runoff election between incumbent Democrat Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker, the last U.S. Senate race to be decided this election cycle. Early voting concludes Friday, with in-person election day slated for December 6th. Sterling tweeted that more than 300,000 Georgians voted Monday, breaking the previous record of around 233,000 votes in one day. Warnock and Walker are going to a runoff because neither received a majority of the votes in the November 8th general election. Warnock won 49.4 percent, while Walker finished with 48.5 percent. If Warnock wins, Democrats would hold the 51-vote edge on Republicans in the chamber, while a Walker win would give the GOP leverage in a 50-50 Senate and complete a sweep of this year's statewide races by the party. Early voting in the Georgia runoff could match the January 2021 Senate runoff which saw 2 million people vote before Election Day. But that year, there were two runoffs, and control of the Senate was hanging in the balance, fueling turnout numbers.
1: Those were the facts, and let's look at the spins. And we start with the Democratic narrative coming from U.S. News & World Report. Issues the Democrats hold near and dear, like bodily autonomy, are driving heavy early voting turnout among young people, women, and black voters, and that bodes well for Warnock. Even the long lines caused by Georgia's restrictive voting laws haven't diminished the enthusiasm of key Democratic voting blocks. And Daily Wire brings us the Republican narrative.
0: Whether they vote early or on Election Day, voters should remember how Warnock and Democrats have worked to divide the country. They painted the Georgia voter integrity law as racist suppression, but it's done nothing to hinder turnout. Walker is the unifying candidate in this race, and he should prevail. <coughs>
1: In our next story, Congress and President Biden plan to intervene in planned railroad strikes. And here are the facts as agreed upon by PBS NewsHour, Guardian, Times Republican, Reuters, New York Times, and CNN. U.S. President Biden has united with Congress in an attempt to intervene in a planned railroad strike before the looming deadline to resolve stalled talks in December. According to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, U.S. legislators will work to impose conditions agreed to by unions in September. Senate Majority and House Minority Leaders Chuck Schumer and Kevin McCarthy indicated on Tuesday that they expect a bill to avert the rail strike to pass in the chambers on Wednesday. Pelosi confirmed that it would be brought to the floor, quote, as early as 9 a.m. The decision to pursue the legislative intervention has put Democratic leaders at odds with union heads. Pelosi addressed the concern, saying, we are reluctant to bypass the standard ratification process for the tentative agreement, but we must act. Discontentment among railroad workers stemmed from a lack of paid sick leave and punitive attendance policies. September's deal, which would begin a 24% compounded wage increase over five years and include five annual $1,000 lump sum payments, was approved by workers in eight unions but rejected by another four as it didn't secure paid sick leave. According to Biden, as many as 765,000 Americans might be put out of work the first two weeks of strikes alone and the threatened suspension which could begin as early as december could cost the u.s economy two billion dollars per day if passed the bill would move to the senate as early as this week where it's expected to have enough votes to pass a filibuster however timing agreements require approval from all 100 members which could see the process delayed
0: thanks for those facts eric we have an establishment critical narrative from cnn Biden is leading the Democrats in imposing a serious setback on employment rights. It's not enough for the president to simply share the workers' concerns. He must allow rail workers the ability to strike and ensure their voice is heard at the negotiating table.
1: Thank you, Scott. Now we have a pro-establishment narrative coming from Daily Mail. Unions have forced Biden's hand. The risks posed by a potential all-out railroad strike are catastrophic and could decimate the U.S. economy. Democratic leaders will seek to impose a set of generous offers already agreed to by a majority of U.S. rail unions. We've got another nerd narrative from Attaculus. This
0: one says, there is a 50% chance that at least 12% of American workers will be represented by a labor union in the year 2030. You ever been in a union,
1: Eric? I have not been in a union. I've been on a chain gang. <laughs> <laughs> oh, some would say that's the same thing.
0: <laughs> and, so, and some would Some yeah. would very vehemently say that wouldn't. <laughs> Crypto Company BlockFi Files for Bankruptcy Here are the facts as agreed upon by Bloomberg, Reuters, BBC News, Decrypt, Financial Express, and XM. BlockFi, a New Jersey-based cryptocurrency lender, announced Monday that it has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection after the firm was caught up in the recent collapse of the FTX exchange. In June, Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX bailed out Zach Prince's BlockFi with a loan of $250 million, and later partnered with the cryptocurrency lender. But FTX filed for bankruptcy on November 11th. In its bankruptcy filing, BlockFi noted it had more than 100,000 creditors with assets and liabilities, ranging from $1 billion to $10 billion. It also owes $30 million to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. The company listed an outstanding $275 million loan to FTX, its second-largest creditor, which it blames for creating a liquidity crisis for the firm. Meanwhile, BlockFi owes $729 million to Ancora Trust, its largest creditor. Earlier this month, BlockFi sold a portion of its crypto assets to raise $238.6 million to fund its bankruptcy. The company now reportedly has $256.5 million in cash on hand. BlockFi, which suspended withdrawals a few weeks ago, is set to pay back its wallet customers in full as part of its initial restructuring plan. Its account holders and creditors are expected to receive a combination of cryptocurrency, cash, and new equity shares.
1: Thank you, Scott. Three spins emerging from this story. Narrative A is the first one being provided by India Today. This is just one of many digital asset firms to collapse, demonstrating that stringent government regulations for transactions in virtual coins are necessary. An unregulated business environment may have irreversible and disastrous economic consequences for lenders, buyers, and the state. Narrative B comes from CNN.
0: The whole point of cryptocurrency is its decentralized structure and immunity to being governed by wealthy conglomerates or authoritarian governments. It's essential to keep cryptocurrency technology as it's supposed to be, decentralized and transparent, to avoid further crypto explosions and bankruptcies.
1: As we take a look at the nerd narrative for this story, it says that there's a 15% chance that Coinbase, the largest cryptocurrency exchange in the U.S. by trading volume, will file for bankruptcy before 2024. And that comes from the Metaculous Prediction community. Turning our attention to Pakistan as the Taliban there ends its truce with the government. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Al Jazeera, Indian Express, and Nation. On Monday, the Tariq-e-Taliban Pakistan, or TTP, a group ideologically aligned yet separate from Afghanistan's Taliban, announced that it had called off a five-month-long ceasefire with the Pakistan government and ordered its fighters to restart attacks. A day after the end of the truce, brokered by Afghanistan's Taliban, Pakistan's junior foreign minister reportedly traveled to Kabul to meet with the militant group to discuss several issues, including security. Shortly after the deal's termination, security sources announced that a top TTP commander and 10 other militants were killed in a fierce encounter between TTP fighters and Pakistani forces, although this couldn't be independently confirmed. Came on the eve of a change of command in the Pakistan army that saw Chief of Staff General Kamar Javid Bajwa replaced by General Asim Munir, now the 17th Army Chief. TTP has been active in Pakistan for over a decade and has claimed or been blamed for many deadly attacks, demanding the levying of Islamic law, the release of members arrested by the government, and the retraction of the merger of Pakistan's tribal areas with Pakhtunwa province.
0: Thanks for those facts, Eric. The establishment critical narrative on this story comes from the Washington Post. Jihadists and peace don't coexist. The ceasefire was supposed to halt the violence. It didn't. It did, however, bring a nuclear state to its knees, which is unsurprising given that Pakistan negotiated with terrorists who want nothing else other than to see a destruction of a country they regard as fundamentally un-Islamic. Now the government must make some harsh decisions before the country becomes a war-torn wasteland.
1: Thank you, Scott. We have a pro-establishment narrative, and it comes from Crisis Group. Although the likelihood of a sustainable ceasefire with the TTP is slim, as evidenced by this latest development, Islamabad entered the agreement with no option other than to negotiate. While the TTP may be separate from the Afghan Taliban, a long-standing ally of Pakistan, they are two faces of the same coin. Needing to fortify ties with its neighboring country, Islamabad made the best it could out of an impossible situation. Our final
0: story, Qatar says up to 500 World Cup migrant workers died. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Middle East Eye, CBS News, Guardian, Axios, CNN, and The Telegraph. In an interview with British journalist Piers Morgan that aired Monday, Qatar World Cup chief Hassan Al-Thawadi said that between 400 and 500 migrant workers have died working on projects linked to the tournament, a larger figure than previously reported by Qatari officials. This estimate was given in response to a question about how many people died from any construction related to the event, including new hotels or bridges, since the country won the bid to host the World Cup in 2010. Qatar's Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy stated later that Al Thawadi was referring to national statistics covering the period of 2014 to 2020 for all work-related fatalities, 414 nationwide in Qatar, covering all sectors and nationalities. FIFA and Qatari organizers have reportedly sought to distance World Cup-related construction from more general projects, officially counting that 40 workers have died on World Cup sites, including 37 non-work-related deaths. Since the beginning of the competition, the issue of migrant workers who built infrastructure for the World Cup, while allegedly having few labor rights and living in squalid conditions, has attracted international attention. Though Qatar's 2.9 million population is comprised mostly of foreigners, the Gulf nation has been accused of mistreating migrant workers despite labor reforms in 2014. Human rights groups have cited violations such as withholding salaries and charging workers to change
1: jobs. Those were the facts, and we have two final spins of this podcast. And for this story, we start with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Al Jazeera. FIFA wants the world to focus solely on soccer, but this World Cup will always be remembered for its human cost and the ongoing suffering among migrant workers. It's outrageous that the international governing body of soccer has flaunted the norms of the global community by granting hosting rights to Qatar without imposing any condition related to labor protection. FIFA must help compensate those affected by such negligence. And Al
0: Jazeera wraps the show with its establishment-critical narrative. While Qatar has flaws, Western criticism of this year's World Cup host under the pretext of advocating for human rights is hypocritical. The West, which has long been happy to take advantage of labor laws in the Gulf Emirate to extract profit, has been selectively denouncing migrant worker exploitation while deliberately failing to recognize improvements in working conditions.
1: Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, November 30th, 2022.
0: Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ.
1: If you'd like more information on Improve the News, visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.